Are you in? Let's go. <laughs> All right, here we go. Three, two, one. Let's, Let's go. go. Yes, I am your host of the PV podcast, Troy Tittlemeyer, joined by, wait a minute, Skips did not make the show again, uh, but it's uh, it's just scheduling and everything else, and right now we're really focused and gearing up for this Railroad Commission show put on by the PBS SEPM, the Geology Nonprofit Organization, and the PBAP, Permian Basin Association of Pipeliners, joined forces, got the regulatory um, uh, Railroad Commission candidates all together for one night to discuss what do you what do you got as a commissioner here? What is your focus? What do you want to do? Where is the industry going? What are the big concerns that we have? Uh, we're bringing the people of the Permian Basin together for one night. We have virtual tickets available February 17th, 5.30 to about 10 p.m. Open bars. Uh, I think it's cash bars, but there'll be bars there. Uh, plenty of food. And I think a really, really enlightening and a lot of good information, just like this show. Uh, Mark, fantastic. Thank you for joining us. Appreciate it, Troy. It's a pleasure being here. Man, so just real quick, tell us, uh, you know, your your uh, your kind of elevator pitch of uh, of your bio, and uh, and then we'll just discuss, you know, what are we looking forward to the most uh, over the next, uh, you know, this year for com the next commissioner voting. Okay, um, yeah, that, that's a lot of information you want real quick right there. <laughs> um, you know, with this election coming up. Uh, selection is critical to the oil and gas industry, and uh, the, the forum that you just mentioned is a good opportunity for people with a vested interest, which should be every citizen in the state, but for the citizens with a vested interest to learn more about who's running for office. Who our commissioners are is critical to people in the oil and gas division. Uh, in the oil and gas industry. Uh, these people set the policy that we have to deal with, that you operate under, and we ask you to look at their qualifications, look at what they're saying, and choose wisely. Um, my background, uh, I worked for the Railroad Commission for almost 30 years. I've experienced it on both sides, and uh, I think it's this is an opportunity for the citizens to have their say about what direction the state should go regarding the oil and gas industry. So I urge them, everybody, to take a look and, and, and really choose wisely because it's, it's a down-ballot race, but it's very important. Uh, it, it affects your livelihood if you're, if you're in Midland or Odessa or if you're in the oil and gas business. It's, it directly affects you, so please choose wisely. All right, then we are officially starting the conception segment of the PBE podcast with Mr. Mark Hankhouse. Sir, thank you for joining the show. Thank you, Troy. This is where I get to sit back and uh, and I just get to enjoy your story. Your story. I get to hear, you know, where it all started, how you got into this uh, twenty six plus years experience. You know, how, your resume. How did that all come together? Share your story, please. Okay, uh, be glad to um, start at the beginning. Um, I grew up in Tyler, Texas, East Texas. Um, being in Midland, I don't have a West Texas accent in case you can't notice, uh, still got the little East Texas draw. Uh, that's, that's followed me around most of my life. Um, grew up in Tyler, uh, went to, uh, college at Texas A&M, majored in petroleum engineering, got out in 1982. Wow. Uh, 1982 was not a very good year for the oil and gas industry and, uh, getting, jobs as uh graduate engineers at that time was was really kind of tough and i i uh 
had several plant trips and several offers. The offer I accepted out of school was, um, strangely enough, uh, an offer to go uh, work for the Texas Railroad Commission in Pampa, Texas, up in the Panhandle, uh, as a freshly minted, wet behind the ears graduate engineer. Uh, in fact, three of my classmates from AM, my same class and myself, all went to work for the Railroad Commission at about the same time. Wow. Um, which, which says two things. One is that's how hard it was to get a, a real oil field job. I figured I'd, uh, I'd get my feet, uh, at least, you know, get them dry and, and figure out what I want to do. It turned out that I, I like this type of work. I, I like doing what I, what I did at the commission. Uh, Pampa was a small district office. Um, it's, if you're in Texas, it's at the end of the world. Uh, the people in Austin that we dealt with could not understand that Pampa was closer to the state capitals of New Mexico, Oklahoma, Colorado, Kansas, and Nebraska than it was to Austin, <laughs> Texas. I mean, that's how far Pampa is um, from the center of the universe uh, if you're in the state government. Unbelievable. But, yeah, and people don't realize Texas, Texas is a big state. Yes, sir. So um, I get up in Pampa, a small office. Um, it was really a wonderful place to kind of break out at because it was small. Uh, a lot of uh, activity, I mean, everything from 1,000-foot gas production to 30,000-foot gas production in the Panhandle. Wow. It, wow. it, it's, a, it's amazing, the contrast. You've got the, the deep Anadarko Basin production, uh, the Mills Ranch Field uh, that some of your uh, listeners may be familiar with, all the way to the, to the shallow East Panhandle field that is actually on a vacuum. You have blow-ins, not blow-outs. What? Uh, it's uh, what? What? Blow-ins and not blow-outs. Yeah, the, the field is on a vacuum. It has it has been produced uh, by vacuum pumps so long the entire reservoir is on a vacuum, negative pressure. So, uh, so you don't drill with with liquids. You 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 air drill. I mean, that's that's how you do. It, not not that anybody's drilling that now, but uh, it. It's complete. It's overbalanced from the start. I mean, oh. it, it, it's a tough environment. Wow. Take me back to 1982, being an undergraduate petroleum engineer, you know, just thinking back now and what your expectations were for a petroleum uh, engineer graduating, like what, what was the job you thought you were going to get? I'm just curious. Well, I figured my interest was always in, in the production engineering aspect. Uh, that's what I enjoyed in school. Uh, that's what, uh, I did best in school. Uh, it just, it made more sense. Uh, and you're talking about the facility designs, the tanks, the pipelines, how the well heads are going to go, what kind of pump you're going to put in the bottom hole like that. That's the production side yeah, of the business. Yeah. Yeah. Completion, uh, production, uh, all of, all of that, that end of it. You're exactly right. Um, but I found when I got up uh, to Pampa that I really enjoyed the the wide variety of things that we did at the Railroad Commission. Everything from uh, helping operators fix problems. If there's a regulatory impact, you have to call the Railroad Commission and get something okayed, whatever. But but we we had a true partnership with the industry. It wasn't a uh, good cop bad citizen type arrangement, but we had a partnership. We worked with the operators. They, I think they respected us. We respected them. And it was a, it was a good situation for the most part. 
And it was a really a good situation to, to learn in. It's a great place to start a career. Um, I've, I, I know several people that uh, went to work for the commission, started in Pampa, and they all agree going to that, uh, that place, and it's, like I say, it's isolated, it's desolate up there, but going there was the best thing they ever did career-wise wow. because, because of the breadth of the experience that they could get. Um, what division specifically were you inside of uh, for most of your, in the beginning of the career? Yeah. In fact, my entire career at the commission, uh, the oil and gas division in, in field operations. I never uh, worked in the Austin office. I worked in three different districts uh, throughout my career, started in Pampa. And uh, in, in Pampa, we, we saw um, lo- lots of uh, different things, you know, the deep production, the shallow production. Some of your, uh, your viewers may recall or may have heard of the white oil controversy up in the panhandle. And uh, that was in the mid 80s, 85, 86. A uh, operator got a ruling from the commission's attorney back in the late 70s, I believe, that you could take a gas stream, condense the liquid out of it, call that liquid crude oil to make your gas oil ratio, and have a bunch of oil wells producing from a gas reservoir. Uh, There was a commission letter issued that allowed operators to do that, and a bunch of the small operators up in the panhandle did that, uh, and they became known as the white oil gang. Uh, they, they, they set up these, uh, their little small gas plants or skid mounted, uh, ran a, um, well, I assume it's a free on cycle type of a, of a Whoa. cooling device, cool that gas stream down to 20 or 30 degrees below zero, knock the liquids out of it, take that liquid, call it crude oil to classify that well as an oil well in the panhandle. You can space an oil well on 10 acres, so you get 64 oil wells per section, oh. or you can, or one gas well holds 640 acres. So you can see what the financial incentive is as far as upping your production. Whoa. Then to further complicate that, oil rights and gas rights were severed back in the 30s, I think. Uh, when when natural gas really did not have much of a market back then, it was in, you know a few cents per MCF. It was interstate contract. There was a, there was some gas sold up into the northeast back in that time. The rest of it was sent to plants. The gasoline was stripped and it was flared. I mean, the gas had no value. Wow. So wow, the gas wow. rights and oil rights were severed, and those severances carry through to the present, so that the gas well operator with his one gas well that makes. 100 or 200 MCF a day and has for 50 years cannot challenge the oil operator who comes in there and puts in 30 or 40 up to 64 oil wells in a section that make that much per well. So-called oil wells. So-called oil wells that make no black (laughs) oil. That's right. That's right. Wow. That must, and they were called the white oil group. What'd you call the, them? The, yeah, it, it was uh, the white oil controversy. Um, white oil, but, why white oil? What was it? Cause of the, 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 the condensate was water white. It, it looked like water. Uh, some, some of that <laughs> stuff was, some of that stuff was so light. It, it was natural gas liquids is what it was. Some of it was so light. You could put a five gallon bucket in the back of your truck to clean your tools with drive to the next location. And it will be evaporated when you get there. Wow. 
This episode is brought to you by Bell Geospace. Bell Geospace has the gravity data that you need in the Permian Basin to see the structures below your reservoir, to see the structures in the reservoir and above. It's all connected. It all has a lot to say and a lot to do with how much oil, brine, or gas you're getting. You need the data to make better wells. You got to contact Julianne Sharples, jsharples at bellgeo.com or go to bellgeo.com, check out their data, check out what they're providing in their FTG, full tensor gravity gradiometry. The data is very high resolution. We did an exciting show, episode 91 with Bell Geospace, interpreting some of that data. Contact them today. Drill better wells. Let's go. This episode of PBE Podcast is brought to you by our friends at Geolog. Geolog offers cost-effective, lab-quality, quantitative, real-time formation evaluation and reservoir characterization solutions to improve well placement, production forecasting, and optimizing of completions. They even have a service that can monitor bitware while drilling. I've actually utilized their services while drilling wells in the Permian Basin, and we were highly impressed with the data acquisition process and the quality of the interpretations. These guys at Geolog are passionate about the data they collect each day at every well site. They've been doing it for 40 years. They are passionate about drill cuttings, passionate about mud gas data, passionate about what the data means and how the data can add value to an asset. They probably collect the most amount of drill cuttings and mud gas data globally each day of any privately owned surface mud logging company. Geolog always employ a consistent quantitative analytical methodology, whether on the well site or back at the lab. So data collected at one well can be compared at another well. We'll be doing a podcast with Dr. Guy Oliver, Geolog's Director of Energy Transition and Data Science, who will be talking more about what Geolog does and diving more into the types of data they collect. That's how volatile that stuff was, but they're calling it crude oil and the commission let them do it. Finally, the commission held a hearing and essentially outlawed that practice. It said that is not crude oil. You have to produce black crude at a certain ratio to be uh, classified as a legal oil well. And that was uh, and a, I, a rule that went across the whole state, or was that a field rule? How did that work? It, it, it was it was a field rule. It was applicable to the panhandle field. Okay. And 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 uh, what the commission ordered was was that the district office had to test personally test every well that was hooked up to a white oil unit. And I think there were 800 or 900 of these wells. So for most of the summer of 1985, um, we had uh, a a bunch of field men that that became well testing experts. That's what they did. 12 hours a day, seven days a week. (laughs) All hands on deck. But we got it done. Wow. And and, uh, most of those wells, of course, would not pass the test. They were shut in, they were sealed, and they ended up getting uh, plugged or... uh, abandoned uh wow do you remember if those wells had a drastic impact on the production of the original guys oh yeah oh yeah the panhandle fields pressure at discovery was uh 400 psi give or take it's about 3,000 feet deep and about 400 psi gas pressure at the surface uh within a few years uh the pressure would be 30 or 40 pounds Whoa! i mean it 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 blew the guts out of the field it really did it was it was not a good move from a conservation standpoint, wow. uh, to say the least. 
Wow. Isn't it amazing? The subsurface can be so connected, huh? Yeah, it, it, it is. Uh, the panhandle field, it's a, it's a brown dolomite, uh, which is considered in most places, the gas reservoir. It overlies the granite wash, which is considered the oil wow. reservoir. And, uh, and, and what these oil operators do is they go complete it deep in the oil zone, pop a few holes up in the gas zone and make their gas. Wow. Son of a Crazy. gun. Yeah. Yes. Wow. So, so 1985, you're now like, okay, there's something. I mean, it's cool. We're working together <laughs> yeah. with operators, but there's some creative operators out there we got to watch out for. <laughs> yeah, that uh, that white oil thing uh, it it got to be uh, it got to be a challenge. It, it took a toll on people. There were uh, there was not a lot of um, there there was there was some uh, I, I don't want to use the wrong word. There were threats made. Uh, there were allegations made that were not right. Uh, we had one field man in particular, a, a good friend of mine, uh, that rumors were started that he was running around on his wife just to cause him trouble because he wow. was he was carrying out the uh, the rules. Uh, this um, there were several operators that would uh, on, on these tests would take the opportunity to to pull out their uh, AR to, to see if you want to shoot it, things like that, which is kind of an implied threat. Whoa. Uh, there, there were, um, phone calls made, uh, anonymous phone calls, making threats, stuff like that. We were, we were impacting people's livelihood and, uh, they, they were not following the rules. Uh, so, you know, they got what they deserve as far as I'm concerned. Wow. Well, you bring up a really interesting point and a segue to the drill down segment when we're not done with your career by any means, we're just getting started. Uh, but what I was thinking was, uh, you know, that's kind of like a micro uh, event to the the big event in the very beginning, it sounds like, for the Railroad Commission. You know, we had this kind of gl oil glut or this, you know, this greed of uh, of just produce everything everywhere and just go, go, go. And, and it was just killing the price, right? And you're going, whoa, guys, you know, we need to regulate this stuff. And the Railroad, Trump. that's... You know that and and so when someone comes up and goes i got this new idea and they go to an investor and the investor is going yeah i'll give you a hundred million dollars go do this it, it sounds like it's going to work and it does technically work and then the railroad commission has to go ah wait a minute sorry guys we're going to have to change the rule on this thing because look what it's doing you're depleting the whole area like you get it right the the economics are there the the people are doing their best and it's successful but it's technically not right and the railroad commission mm -hmm. had to step in and bang you get all those responses that very real world situation there you're you're right the, the commission has a couple really chief roles one is uh to protect the environment one is to protect correlative rights which is uh, a lot of people don't understand what correlative rights is but correlative rights is your right to drill a well not your right to not be drained. There's a difference. Um, and then the commission also has a right to uh, conserve resources. The white oil uh, uh, whole controversy was not a conservation method by any stretch. It was, it was very wasteful. It was, um, and, we, and we'll talk about some of the history of the commission uh, in a little bit, I think. Um, but the, the commission has always tried to be very conservative minded of the resources. Now, 
they're doing a much better job now than they used to. Back in the 20s and the 30s, when natural gas really had no value, it was stripped and flared. Uh, yeah. it, and, and that was perfectly legal uh, because it had no value. But as, as natural gas gained market share and it became worth something, the flaring became uh, a rule was passed to make flaring uh, without good cause illegal. And right. it still is today. So, yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll talk about some of that in, in a minute, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so it's 1985 or 1986. Yep. That's I was born in 86. Just to give you a perspective on that. Well, babe in the woods. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, and you know what else? What else was going on in in the 80s was that big uh, that bank situation over in uh, in Oklahoma, right? There was this. It, yeah, Penn Square. Penn Square. What year was yeah. that? Was that 86? Uh, that was uh, in the 80s. The, the, the oil price in 1986 uh, dropped down to the single digits. And industry came to an almost abrupt halt. Uh, there was no oh. drilling. There was no work over. There was no maintenance. Uh, people, if you had a well that made oil, you kept it online. And when it went off, you, you, you kept it off. Uh, it, it, was, um, it was very tough. And if you look at uh, the, the big global picture, uh, Ronald Reagan he was president. He had kind of cut what, in my opinion, a side deal with uh, the Saudis. They, they oversaturated the market. The oil price crashed, which basically bankrupted the Soviet union. Four years later, the Soviet union dissolves. And that's why. So the, the, the failure of the Soviet union in 1990 is really on the backs of the oil and gas men and women in this country. Whoa. Wow. A lot of people don't believe, don't understand that impact, but, but the sacrifice the oil and gas producers made in the eighties was to essentially eliminate the Soviet union from being a threat to the United States. And they were successful. Wow. Wow. Unknowingly though, is what you're saying. Un unknowingly. Nobody knew it at the time. Nobody knew it, wow. but I, th I think that was, it was intentional. And I think it was directed uh, for that purpose. And I, you know, I think it was our government along with a few other governments probably doing it and, and they yeah. were successful. Wow. You know, and it, I think the response, at least what I can gather from that is, you know, the, the belief that Americans have the ability to to withstand something like that for the country, for the defense of the country or for the, you know, that 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 reason, it was beyond them. But we as Americans can figure it out. We come together, the communities come together, the, the operators figured it out and we move forward and you know, and, and, and the process and business moves on and, and it recovers. But man, I can't imagine living through that. Whoa. It was it was a tough time. Um, people were going out of business every day. Bankruptcies skyrocketed. Uh, nobody was going into the oil and gas business at that time. Uh, petroleum engineering, geology, school enrollment fell to its lowest probably ever at that time because there were no jobs. It was it was a fundamental uh, reset of the oil and gas industry, and the industry came out of that. And uh, uh, you know, in in fact, uh, we'll talk about oil pricing and inactivity in a little bit later. I've, I've got a, a graph in that uh, presentation. We'll look at uh, we'll discuss this a little bit more. But uh, that whole 1980s reset really, I think, changed the industry probably for the better. It made us get smarter at what we do. Wow. Drilling became much more efficient. Production became a lot more efficient. Uh, bad times always increase efficiency, it seems. Wow. Right on. Right on. That's the silver lining. 
Yep. Okay, so yep. 86, 87, 88. You're getting to the Cowboys era of Super Bowl in the 90s. What what, <laughs> yeah. what are you up to? Um, I stayed in Pampa for uh, I don't know, five or six years. Uh, late 80s, I transferred to Wichita Falls uh, as an assistant director of the district in Wichita Falls. In, in Wichita Falls, North Texas, that's its own different universe. Um, there, There's a saying up there that an operator um, – a net profit in a year is stealing more from your neighbor than your neighbor stole from you. Uh, it, it is a, it is the wild, wild west up there at the time. It was shallow operators, all mom and pop type operators. There were no majors left in Wichita Falls when I was there. It was, it was strictly small local independence and it was, um, it was the wild, wild west. It's the best way to put it. Wow. Uh, uh, I, I enjoyed what I did up there. Um, we uh, we had an event. I, I, I probably should not mention any names. This has been thirty years, but uh, I I shouldn't mention any names. We had an event where um, we found that a, a a an employee of the commission was uh, working a deal with a well plugger and and making um, a little income on the side, and he was in charge of some uh, contracts the state was issuing, and uh, we actually performed investigation. Um, on him, had him terminated, had felony charges filed against him for several things and, and, and did a little house cleaning up there. I mean, so we've got. Sorry to cut you off. The Wichita office is uh, Fort Worth Basin, East Texas Basin. East Texas Basin. Is that the region? It's Northern Fort Worth Basin um, in the Hardeman Basin. It, it runs from Childress to. Um, Gainesville along the Red River, wow, one okay. or two, one or one or two counties deep. Um, Childress, Vernon, Graham, Gainesville, Sherman Denison area, Denton is is all in the Wichita Falls district. Okay, okay. it's a, it's a relatively small district in terms of real estate, but it's got a a very large well count, shallow wells mostly. Um, it, it's, it's it's the earliest production uh, was around Electra, started in, I think nineteen eleven. Wow. So wow. Uh, it did old, old stuff, old production, old oh, cool. stuff. Yeah. So you yeah. start as a petroleum engineer coming straight into the department of the oil and gas division uh, up in Pampa. You transfer, you said you were an assistant director now. How does that like ladder shuffle go when you started to assistant director? You know, what is that like? Um, well, yeah, each district, um, the hierarchy in each district is you've got the, the, field staff and the technical staff, they report up through the assistant director. The assistant director reports to the district director. District, district director oversees all the operations of the district, uh, clerical, technical, and field, and reports uh, to field operations in Austin. So um, I went from a, a staff engineer level in Pampa and uh, to an assistant director position, which put the technical and field staff uh, under my uh, um supervision yeah okay and reported up to the uh, district director in wichita falls who was a uh, a career guy from wichita that uh, had been there for a number of years great guy named fred mcneil wow um yeah. he, uh, he he was a uh, really a he was a local guy and, and he was he was loved by everybody he finally passed away about um gosh it's probably been 15 20 years ago wow uh, but 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 a but really fine gentleman 
Wow. Okay. So you're in Wichita. You got field enge- uh, field engineers. You got the technical engineers on staff. Mm-hmm. They're they're communicating. They're telling. They're kind of managing what's really going on out there. The boots on the ground. And you're you're they're you're reporting to you. You're kind of supervising that situation. You clean up reports and you hand it off to the director. And uh, and then that information keeps going. And and you're collecting data every day, every month. You guys are are collecting operating data. You know these operators have to mail this stuff into you guys. You're reading these letters. You're you're writing. Yeah, I mean, whoa. Of course, but you know back then, um, it was. It's not like it is now. Uh, everything was handled hard copy. Um, we the, uh, the the districts got our first fax machine when I was in Wichita Falls <laughs> uh, in the late eighties. And boy, that's that's you know we're cooking with gas now. Let me tell you, <laughs> that's 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 how backwards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how backwards uh, things can be. Um, and, and something will surprise you is even to this day, the commission still operates off of an old mainframe computing system that, if I understand it right, was written back in the 70s using, I don't know, COBOL or Fortran. And uh, it, it's, it's still being used. It's That's still awesome. in place. They're trying yeah. to modernize, but it's still there. <laughs> so Wow. That is yeah. cool. So that's an interesting, interesting role. So you, you, at this point, you're you're several years in. You've changed mm-hmm. locations. You really see yourself being at, at the railroad commission long term. At this point, you really see a career there. At this point, uh, yeah, I, I I did. I mean, I I think I was uh, in a lot of ways being fast tracked. Um, I had uh, a couple gentlemen in field operations in Austin, one named Bill Hall, one named Rex King. Uh, and these guys were, these guys were field guys when the railroad commission first started having field guys in the late fifties and early sixties. And, uh, so they were, they were older, um, and they were operating the field operations section. They were non-degree. They worked their way up. That's back when you could learn and, and go through the school of hard knocks and get somewhere. And they did, uh, they were, they were my mentors for most of my career at the commission. Uh, wow. if I had a situation that I did not understand or, or that, uh, perplexed me, I, I could pick up the phone and call bill or call Rex anytime They'd love day it. or night. And, and they would, uh, they would get me there. Uh, and, uh, bill hall passed away probably about 20 years ago, Rex King, I think is still with us. Uh, I think his, his health is, um, not quite so good, but, uh, if I understand right, Rex, I think is still with us, but he's, you know, obviously been retired for 20 plus years. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So we're, we're well into the nineties now, assistant director. Uh, how does your career kind of go and, and get us into, uh, you know, what you, the meat of your career and, and the railroad commission. Yep. And, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm in Wichita Falls and I got a call from, uh, actually Rex called me, said, um, do you want to move to Midland? Midland? Why Midland? Uh, we need a director at the Midland office. And the Midland office was the biggest railroad commission office by far, wow. the, the largest one in the state. Um, and it turned out they had a personnel change here. And he said, uh, uh why don't you come down and, uh, let's talk to you about it. So I went down there and I got the job and, uh, showed up in Midland as district director. Um, that was in 1990 and I got to hire, um, an assistant director. Actually, the the director and the assistant director both turned over about the same time. 
And I got to hire a gentleman as my assistant director, uh, probably one of my best friends, a gentleman named Charlie Ross, who's at Chevron now. Wow. Um, Charlie was working for the commission. He worked in Austin Corpus. Uh, he was trying to uh, do something with his career and agreed to come out and, and be the assistant director in Midland. And we both started in the summer of uh, 1990. And um, that had we to be had pretty a, cool. Yeah, we had a we had a challenge. The office was a mess. Um, the the people that were running things that, that had left um, probably left for good reason. There was not a lot of uh, management and control. Not a lot of quality control, not a lot of support to the staff. Um, and Charlie and I came in there and in a matter of, uh, you know, months to a year, uh, we turned that office around. And by the time, uh, Charlie left as my assistant, he went from being my assistant to my boss, by the way, um, which was, we had a great working relationship. Yeah. Uh, it's I, totally cool. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I loved it. Um, that's why I stayed there as long as I did cause I had him, uh, uh, kind of, you know, raking the leaves for me. So, uh, but uh, we, we got that office cleaned up, got the performance on board, hired some good people, um, had a great field staff, great technical staff. And in a matter of a short period of time, we were soon recognized. Uh, the Kilgore office and the Midland District office were recognized as the two best offices in the state. And it's all because of the support and the people you have. You, you give the people the support they need to do their job. They understand what their job is. And their performance will shine, and it, it worked marvelously. We wow. we did a had a great time uh, running that office, doing some good things. Um, we did so well that in 1994, the commission decided to close the Lubbock office and roll the Lubbock district into Midland. So wow. Midland became a uh, became known. Dist Midland's District Eight, Lubbock was Eight A. It was created as a sub-district in the 1960s when the water floods became a big project up in the, the, the northern shelf area, the mm -hmm. northern Permian Basin mm -hmm. around the Horseshoe Atoll area. So they created that office, but in 1994, closed it, brought it back to Midland. So we gained all of their staff back and uh, became, uh, you know, without a question, the largest office in the state, the most active. Uh, at one time, the Midland office had... Um, there were about 100,000 oil and gas wells in the state of Texas. The Midland office was responsible for about 70,000 of those. Holy smokes. And in close to 80% of the oil production from the state of Texas out of the Midland office, Permian Basin. Active and producing oil wells was 100,000 in the early 90s? In the state of Texas, yes. Whoa. Yep. Wow. What's it now? It's It's... You know, I don't know. That's a good question. I would guess the number's probably about the same. There's been a lot of plugging, but there's been a lot of drilling. <laughs> I, I bet that number's pretty static, to be honest with you. Wow. Wow. Now, of course, I mean, oil, produc oil production skyrocketed because of the horizontal technology. But, yeah. Right. right. Now, uh, interesting to kind of get your take, and maybe this is how we can go into the drill down seg segment. You're in Midland in the 90s and you are about 10 years or maybe 15 really 15 away from seeing the horizontal shell revolution play like create itself run itself out and now you know we're here i mean what what was that like when did that when did you start really seeing that the horizontals and the the permian 
basin was just it, it seemed like the running room is i mean it just when you noticed what was going to happen yeah you, you know the horizontals you're, you're exactly right are a relatively new thing the the technology finally got up to where horizontals were economic and and, uh, and people chose to to do the horizontal completions throughout most of my career in midland uh, midland was was vertically uh, centered. I mean, there's there's no question about it. Uh, people would say over and over that the Sprayberry is the world's largest uneconomic oil field. And uh, if if you're developing it vertically, that's probably correct because uh, Sprayberry it's tight. You'll make oil, you make it for a long time, but you won't make much of it. <laughs> so, wow. um, so the the horizontals, um, you know, it really all started uh, in the. Uh, in the Barnett Shell in Texas, North Texas, uh, George Mitchell kind of uh, figured out how to how to stage frack these horizontals, and that's really what kind of let the thing out of the out of the cage. And then the horizontal technology, the Barnett Shell was just booming, and Eagleford, and and then people come out here to the Permian and start uh, experimenting with it and and learn that. Yeah, the technology does work. When you've got a tight reservoir, you expose that much to the well, you expose that much to your hydraulic fracturing, yep. and you're going to make some oil. I yeah. mean, and it has been very successful. Now, uh, the economics, is, as some have found, are probably not as good as they would like them to be. There's, there's, uh, you know, some of the uh, uh, the Northwest Permian play in, in uh, Lee and Eddy County, New Mexico. The economics are probably better than anything in Texas. It's that prolific. But um, the, the horizontal technology has given the entire Permian Basin a new lease on life when it comes to oil and gas production. If you look at the production, the numbers have doubled and tripled, and there's no end to it in sight. The, and what's interesting at the same time is the technology has improved. The Railroad Commission has had to modify its rules to fit that. The, commi the commission's first rule that allowed horizontal drilling was back in, uh, I think it was about 1990. I don't have that in front of me. I think it was 1990 rule 86. And it was really oriented towards the short lateral or multilateral horizontal drilling that was kind of done at the time, one to 500 foot horizontals. And it, <laughs> it, I mean, I mean, that's, that's, that was, that was technology there. Wow. And, but it made those legal. It, it uh, basically said your horizontal well, any point on that horizontal has to be a legal well for it to be legal. And uh, that's that's how it was treated. And then when the long laterals got up, uh, three-mile laterals are not uncommon now. Unbelievable. Which is, it is unbelievable. Uh, first, it's the half mile, then the one mile, then the mile and a half. And, and now three miles are, are relatively common. But as the horizontal drilling got better and better and longer reach and longer reach, the commissions had to change uh, several of the rules. And Sprayberry was the first that changed that allowed, for instance, uh, wells to cross lease lines. Now, the rule doesn't really let that happen, but the rule doesn't prohibit it. And there has not been a court case that said it's not legal, but horizontal wells can cross lease lines if you declare it's an allocation or what they call a PSA, production sharing agreement well. In other words, you're treating every tract as if it was its own, and you're treating your well bore that crosses that track as if it was a separate well, and you're having to allocate production 
to those tracks and to those owners. Wow. So I got 20% in this tract of the wellbore. I got 30% of the wellbore in this tract, mm-hmm. and I got 40%. And each of those tracks are getting paid out 20% of the production, 30% yep. of the... T- yep. You, wow. and, and, there's, and, and how you do it is really up to the operator. Uh, there's, there, there's some business risk in this, obviously. Uh, a lot of people, a lot, a lot, some will consider this pooling when a lease does not allow pooling. Um, it's not pooling. It's, it's an allocation well. You're not pooling that track. You are co-producing it with another track. It's not pooled. There is no shared ownership among those tracks. It wow. is separate ownership. Wow. But uh, as long as you present a, an allocation that is fair and equitable, and it can be based on completed lateral length in that track, you know, if you had a one-mile lateral, uh, you imagine a 640 acre section and you have one mile lateral that splits that section in half. Okay. So you've got a half a mile on one, one half and a half a mile on the other half. If you assign 50% production to each track, because it's equally completed, that's equitable. And the commission will allow you to do that. Wow. You could, you could assign it by surface acreage that's been done. In in fact, uh, signing it by surface acreage is probably easier because then uh, you're allocating based on the acreage and not by lateral length. So the ownership in each well will remain relatively constant. It's a little easier to manage, but I think it's got a little more risk. Wow. Gosh, that's fascinating. So you saw the Barnett breakout, the horizontal starting the Eagle for it. Then you you just see all the headlights turn to the Permian. Here we come, baby. We're going to try this in the Permian. Yeah, because you look at, um, at 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 the hydrocarbon in place, the, you know, the source rock, I mean, the Permian is where it's at. Uh, as any geologist will tell you, the oil is here. You just got to figure out how to get it. And the horizontal drilling and the hydraulic fracturing, uh, the, the bigger fracks, the bigger sand loads, it, it's, it's made the stuff more and more economical. I, and, uh, I don't know if economical is the right word. It's It's made it where companies find it attractive to do. Some of it's probably not economical in the long term. Right. Right. And I think a lot. Yeah. The the investors have figured that out. (laughs) Right. Right. The performance has been interesting and impressive, Uh, but the the true economics. Yeah. I don't know if anybody will will really know, but I think we all have an idea that it, it didn't work out for, for most uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. It, it's still very price sensitive and cost sensitive, yep. even though you get, uh, these, these huge, uh, IP numbers that you see in the paper right. or see in the news, it's, it's still very cost sensitive. Yep. Wow. Gosh. How, what's the most amount of completed wells that you've seen in one month at the Midland office? One month, most amount of completions. You know, when I was there, I left the commission in 2009, which was really before the big right. horizontal yeah. boom here. Yeah. Um, and in fact, I left the commission in, in 09 to go work for Exco Resources in Dallas. And Exco was a Hainsville and Marcellus driller. Oh, that were all They were all in the horizontal play. And this kind of looked like something uh, interesting I, sh- I ought to try to do. And um, I spent about four years at Exco, uh, worked Texas, Louisiana, and Pennsylvania for those guys, and, and had a had a great time. Some wonderful people at Exco. Uh, some some of the best people I've ever worked with anywhere at, at Exco. And uh, what 
what turned out uh, bad for Exco was that they were they were really gas centric. They were a gas company, and the world did not love gas companies back then. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, the, the the gas pricing was was really not not good. Uh, the horizontal drilling was still very expensive. It was early in the learning curve on the horizontal work. Um, Exco did as good as, as anybody. I mean, uh, 30 million, 35 million IPs, uh, in the Hainesville were not right. uncommon. Right. Um, but, but the economics weren't there and Exco ended up, uh, uh, filing bankruptcy and reorganizing, uh, right after I left. Wow. I so, kind of, kind of see the writing on the walls. So it's time to go. 2013, 2014, something like that. Uh, 2012 is when I left. And, uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and they ended up uh, reorganizing. It's probably been three or four years ago when they finally came out of that. Wow. Wow. It was, it was quite a process. And quite a process. Uh, so you, you dabble, you finally get a dabble in the operating side upstream. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you've run that through technically successful. It sounds like, but based on prices and costs going in, you know, the whole thing, you, you, you see the, the writing on the wall and, and understand that. Where do you go from there? Um, and and I, I like your term, technically successful. Exco was technically successful. Absolutely. Um, you know, when, when I went to Exco, they did not have anybody. Uh, they had some people doing regulatory work. They did not have a regulatory section or scheme or, or anything. I, and they asked me to come in and kind of set that up. And I did that. And, you know, actually, I, I turned out to be, I was, I was pretty good at that. So when I, when I finished uh, getting that set up at Exco, um, a, a friend of mine I went to school with, a gentleman named Lucian Ray at Apache, called me and said, Hey, got something here for you. Midland again. <laughs> and because Exco was in Dallas, and uh, I talked to Lucian, came out, interviewed, and accepted the position with Apache as regulatory manager for the Permian region. Wow. That's the and, Darth and Vader kinda, building, right? The big, nice. Uh, no, no, that that's 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 the old Chevron building. Oh, that, that one, yeah, okay. the Battlestar. The yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Apache is uh, in Claydesta area, uh, located um, a little bit towards Big Spring Street in in a six story building. There. Yeah, that's right. um, so. So I came to Apache and, and kind of had the same opportunity. They did not have anybody leading the regulatory group, did not have any representation with any of the uh, legislative regulatory groups, things like that. Came in, uh, was able to hire some good people, uh, set it up and and got it working. Did kind of did the same thing. And, uh, you know, here at the Permian region, we're responsible for most of West Texas and New Mexico. Had a lot to do. Um, I don't know. Uh, thousands of wells. Apache was a, a busy operator. It, it at one point had you know fifteen or eighteen rigs running. Uh, there was a lot going on, and and we had a good time doing it. And uh, then when the COVID stuff started and prices started sliding, and Apache decided to reorg, everybody that had the right formula in terms of age and years of service got an offer to go. And that was kind of an offer I couldn't refuse. So wow. I, I took that and, and went into business for myself at that time. Consulting now, uh, mm-hmm. expanding your regulatory knowledge, contacts, resources, understanding across any state, or you just focused primarily on Texas? Focused on Texas, but Texas and New Mexico. Um, New Mexico is a tough state to work in. It's, it's, it's state and it's federal. 
uh, I mean, there's some private ownership of minerals there, but you deal with the state and you deal, deal with the federal government. So you have two regulatory schemes that compete in New Mexico. If you're drilling a federal well, you permit that well with the federal government, with the Bureau of Land Management, not with the state. Mm. But you're obligated to file certain reports and production uh, reports the with the state. With the state, that's right. But the permitting um, and the rules permitting is federal. But the opposite is true if you have a let's say you have a disposal well on on federal land. The state has primacy from the EPA for permitting disposal operations. So the state permits that disposal well on federal land <laughs> and the feds won't touch it wow. because they've delegated that to the state. It, it's really confusing sometimes. Wow. You know, um, I, I did a podcast just recently with Kelly Maddox Sutter. She's the co-host of this event coming up on February 17th. And I said, who does the Texas Railroad Commission report to? Like it. Do they have to report to the feds on things or who, how does that work? And we didn't know the answer. We couldn't Google it. Google didn't know. Uh, you know, what is the answer to that? Um, the, yeah, there, there actually, there is an answer to that. Railroad commission reports to the legislature of the state of Texas. That's the boss. Uh, the legislature sets the railroad commission's uh, budget. The railroad commission enacts laws that the legislature passes by approving and enacting rules that the operators have to follow. So legislation creates rules. Rules is what, the, what we have to follow in the field. We don't follow the law. We follow the rules. Uh, so the legislature is the Railroad Commission's boss. However, on areas that the federal government has taken control of, such as underground injection, disposal wells, injection wells, um, discharge permits, uh, some air permitting, the federal government through the EPA will oftentimes delegate that authority back to the state, which they have done for the Railroad Commission for underground injection activities or the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality for air permitting and uh, hazardous waste disposal, things like that. Okay. So while the, the direct boss for the Railroad Commission is the legislature, the commission has certain rules and responsibilities to the federal government that it's promised to uphold in exchange for getting that delegated authority back to the state. Okay. Wow. Great answer. Thank you for clearing that up. Uh, <laughs> we, uh, we have made it, we have made it to the drill down segment of the PBE podcast. Um, do you want to, okay. do you want to take a quick break? You need water? You need anything? I'm good. Okay. Okay, so setting the stage again for the drill down segment specifically, we are heading into Midland, Texas next week for a night with the candidates that are running for commissioner for the for one of the seats of the railroad commission. And and I, I will get into the details of that in this presentation. So okay. one of the things that I wanted to do was, you know, how does it What's the history of the Railroad Commission? Definitely. But the inner workings of it, you know, how do you convey information in the Railroad Commission? How are operators or academia, you know, teaching uh, the Railroad Commission new ideas and new technology that's coming? Uh, how And the Railroad Commission, you know, thinks about that and creates rules around that. You know, the, the inner workings of the Railroad Commission, I thought would be such an interesting insight for everybody to just kind of listen to before we listen to 
a commissioner candidate tell us what they think is you know so important and why we should be voting for them at such a vital time in in the texas railroad commission candidacy so uh the floor is yours okay all right well uh first of all um we we got to kind of discuss my history my career when i left apache i set up uh this, this is a one horse show. It, it's Permian Regulatory Solutions. It's me. Um, and what I've done is I've taken what I've learned over a 30 something year career and positioned myself to help operators negotiate, navigate, and comply with the rules and the regulations. Um, this kind of puts me in a, a unique position because there's not a lot of people with my background. There's not a lot of people that are degreed engineers that have done what I've done. So I'm able to kind of help them on both the technical side and sometimes the political side. Um, this, this has been uh, what I've done since I started this. Uh, this Permian Regulatory is uh, something that uh, I started in April of 2020, about the time the COVID stuff started. Um, a lot of people say it's a stupid time to start a business, but for me, it was the perfect time. I mean, I could as uh, I just left Apache and um, I knew I wasn't ready to sit down and, and uh, retire yet. I'm not old enough to retire. So I decided to do this, be my own boss and, and be able to answer to myself. And, and so far it's, it's been great. I've enjoyed it. I've been able to help a lot of people accomplish a lot of things they didn't think they could get done. Wow. And, and, uh, and I've got, um, I've, I've worked with uh, 40 or 45 different companies over the last couple of years. Uh, some of them more than others, some of them uh, single tasks, single uh, problems to solve, and some of them on a more of a recurring basis, uh, almost as a, uh, like a, not an in-house, but an outhouse consultant, as it were. <laughs> um, so um, and I've, this I've had, a, have a, I've really enjoyed this. I've, I've been able to help some people do some things, stay in touch with some great people, good people out there. And this has been uh, something I've really enjoyed. Oh, it's awesome. It's great to hear that. And I think it's encouraging to hear that. I think a lot of people took a, a step out and, and kind of tried to maybe do something on their own. And it's, it's always nice to hear uh, someone's you know story as they're winning and, and it's, it's working out. So I, I applaud that and, and very admirable. Is this picture taken actually in Midland, Texas, looking West? Um, that picture uh, is a picture that was taken in the uh, Delaware basin West of Midland. Wow. Right on. Yes. Right on. Okay. Okay. So you ask a good question. You know, what does the railroad commission do? Why do we do it? And why is it important? Why do we even need to worry about who runs and who gets elected? And the railroad commission is a very important organization. This, this is a great picture. It took this, uh, I think I was hanging out the window on the Southwest flight into Midland and right in the center of that picture is garden city, Glasscock County, right there. That is garden city. And uh, I use this picture to explain to people that, uh, even though the basin, you know, this is developed, obviously there are hundreds of locations there. You just can't see them because of the rules the commission's put in place to allow this thing to be developed to the maximum extent. And I'll go over some of that here in a little bit, but, but this is a good illustration of why we need the commission to kind of stay up with technology and look forward and try to help industry by innovating in some of these rules. Wow. Go ahead. 
All right, let's look at the old days. Uh, Spindle Top was the first big discovery in Texas. Oil production in Texas actually dates back to the eight, late 1860s. Uh, near Melrose, Nacogdoches, Texas, and East Texas, there was uh, early oil production. It was not really commercial. It was kind of, a, I think, a nuisance, probably somebody trying to drill a water well, and uh, they struck oil, so they, they got uh, didn't get what they wanted. But Spindletop, at the turn of the century, was the first big commercial out-the-door oil and gas uh, deal in Texas, and this is a, a 1902 photograph. And uh, you can see we've got those old wooden derricks, wooden tanks. Uh, in East Texas, they're cypress. In West Texas, they're redwood. Those are old cypress wood tanks. And uh, you can see that uh, you could literally walk from derrick floor to derrick floor. Um, not, a lot of a, not a lot of efficiency. How much waste occurred here? Oh. And, and, waste, and waste is not just the waste of the hydrocarbon, but if you have two wells side by side, and one of them's not needed, you have wasted the financial resources to drill that second well. A lot I can't of people help, don't understand that. Right. And I can't help but to see in my own mind, uh, when you light up all the horizontal wells in the in the subsurface, it looks about the da about the same. I mean, we did it across <laughs> the surface quite. here, but I mean, <laughs> you got five horizontals in one section. It it looks pretty similar. And I think you hit the nail on the head. You know, you got to wonder how much of this is just wasted time, wasted effort, wasted money. Right. I see a lot of derricks and two oil tanks. I mean, <laughs> what's going on here? And, and back then there were no rules. And if you did not drill your well, your neighbor was going to drain you. So wow. you had to. Wow. Wow. Hey, wow. Go to the next picture. She. All right. Uh, this is, um, in the Beaumont area. And uh, you can see the here again, where we are Derek to Derek. How much, how much unnecessary capital was stuck in the ground here? Wow. How much waste? Oh, um, this is uh, Corsicana. Uh, Corsicana south of Dallas uh, is one of the largest oil fields in texas for years and years uh the course of shallows it's three to four hundred feet deep and you can see all that uh activity there uh, played out pretty quick uh but it still produces to this day um here again how how much of this was really necessary and if if you can look at some of these pictures there's oil on the ground there's pits you know there's all, all kinds of environmental issues associated with this uh that that no longer is is allowed of course all right such a cool piece of history in this stuff desdemona this is kind of um in the abilene area um, north central texas um it was one of the early fields i think it was developed in the 20s if i understand correct uh, kind of the same thing, but this is just typical Texas boomtown. Not not a lot of uh, foresight in, in how this stuff was developed. And then the big one, Kilgore, the East Texas oil field. East Texas oil field at Discovery in 1930 was, um, I think, uh, advertised as being the largest oil field in the world and probably was until uh, the Saudis and, and uh, some of the Middle Eastern countries developed their resources.
But uh, on the left is uh, a picture postcard looking over Kilgore. And we've graduated from wood to steel derricks, old standard derricks now. Um, so, so technology's improving. And the picture on the right uh, shows wells being drilled in a churchyard. I mean, there Whoa. is... There is absolutely no regulation, no rules to what's drilled where and how. And uh, Kilgore is a good example. They still have some derricks standing downtown Kilgore. Uh, they call the uh, the million dollar mile. It's it's a bunch of derricks stood together, and that's 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 how the wells were drilled. Wow! Literally, feet apart. Like pastor, I don't have cash for the pan this weekend, <laughs> but I can drill a well in your in the backyard of this building for you. Hopefully the church got some royalties off that. I don't know. <laughs> wow. Incredible. Okay. Okay. So th these are just a few shots showing that, you know, we had to do something. The state had to do something. That was not a sustainable development mechanism in terms of conservation, resource management, and in pricing also. Uh, the oil markets were flooded. Oil prices it was cheaper to buy uh, oil than it was to buy fresh water in some places. It was, uh, the market was upside down. So in 1930, the state gave the Railroad Commission authority to establish spacing rules, allowables, and the authority to prohibit the waste of oil and gas. So that's when the Railroad Commission became involved in the waste aspect of what our industry does. Wow. It's, it's reminded me a little bit about, uh, you know, it's kind of like the, the, the original ESG. It gives me a feel that, you know, government stepped in, you got social aspect of this and you got the environmental and, you know, something needed to happen and we need to create some, some, some more regulatory, some more rules, some more precision in what's going on here. There's so much waste and it's so obvious, you know, that that needed to happen. That's what, you know, this to me is, is kind of like the original ESG movement. Yeah, it, it, it almost was. And, and there were several drivers for it. And I think the, uh, the price of oil was, was the big driver, to be honest with you. Uh, yeah. The price of oil was so low, it was not sustainable. Um, one question that people ask, and, and it's really a good question, is railroad commission. Doesn't the railroad commission regulate railroads? Why, why does the railroad commission regulate oil and gas? And, and that's, that's a very good question that actually has uh, an explanation as part of history. The Railroad Commission was established in 1891 when railroads ruled the state of Texas. If you went anywhere in the state, you, you took the train. If you shipped your goods to market and went on the train, there were no highways. There were no trucks. There were no cars. The, the train was the transportation method. Because of that, trains... Um, and one line would typically serve one community or one route. So you had mon monopolistic uh, pricing came into play over getting goods or passengers from one area to another. The Railroad Commission was established to regulate the intrastate railroads in terms of pricing and tariffs, et cetera. Railroad Commission was established, and it had three commissioners and, and two or three employees, and everything's great. And that's what they did. So the Railroad Commission was then uh, given pipelines when pipelines became the new technology back in the, in the teens. Uh, 
well, they already regulate trains and transportation. This is just another method of transportation. So they gave them pipelines. Legislature gave the commission oil and gas regulation uh, in the 20s because the commission regulated pipelines already because they regulated transportation. So the commission's mission really flipped from transportation to oil and gas uh, starting back in 19, uh, I think 1917 it was. Okay, so. Railroad Commission had the authority from the legislature to institute proration. And proration is setting an allowable that allows a well to produce its share of the demand, however demand is calculated. And uh, what, what I've got here is actually a copy of a special order dated July of 31, whereas the Railroad Commission uh, has acknowledged that it appears great waste of oil and gas is taking place and they're hereby restricting production in Kilgore. And that was kind of like starting a war, if you know what I wow. mean. Wow. And so the war started. Go to the next slide. And there's the National Guard coming out to take care of things. <laughs> wow. Governor Sterling actually had to call out the National Guard and declare martial law in the East Texas field. It was, it was that bad. People would not shut their production in. People were drilling wells without uh, authority, without regard to the new spacing requirements. The National Guard had to come out and forcibly shut wells in. And I've actually got some uh, pictures of National Guardsmen shutting and chaining locked wells. It's uh, It was uh, not probably not a very good time back in the oil field back then. Oh. But, but this established and confirmed the Railroad Commission's ability to institute proration. Now, what that did, it immediately brought the price of oil up because you're not overproducing. And oil went from five or 10 cents a barrel to about $3 a barrel, which, which is where it set from the 1930s until 1973. Holy smokes. So otherwise it would have sat there in the in the sense, the tens of cents or something. It, I mean, it could have until people got broke and wells didn't produce, then the price would go up and you'd get this crazy up and down motion in, in pricing, kind of like you see now, in a way. Wow. Yep. Yeah. Wow. I had to forcefully so, shut yep. in producing wells. So the National Guard had to institute martial law to shut these wells in. Wow. And so here's what happened. By instituting proration and instituting these spacing rules, the, the commission can increase allowables and prices would be forced down. Or they could do the opposite. They could decrease allowables and prices would be pushed up. So by setting the allowable, they balance that monthly. And they'd actually take nominations from demand sources, pipelines, refineries, whoever's using that end product, and calculate what the demand was going to be for that month, and then calculate how much of that demand your well could be allowed to produce. Mm. And back in those days, you're given uh, an allowable in terms of number of days per month you could produce. Mm. You could produce. You could produce two days this month. That was that was it, or three days. And and the commission was then setting the world price of oil because they could control the market. And that's why the oil price remained flat from the 1930s to the 1970s, because the Railroad Commission set that price by setting the allowables. 
you know, you don't remember the, you know, if you're born in 86, you obviously don't remember the 73 oil embargo. Uh, but, but some of the people out there probably will when, when uh, OPEC, the Arab countries, uh, did not like the United States supporting Israel in, in that uh, uh, war. They immediately embargoed all oil products to the United States and much of the West. And oil prices shot up and oil got very scarce gasoline lines you may have seen the pictures people waiting in line for gasoline if your license yeah. plate had a, had an odd number you could only buy gas on odd days that type of thing uh, that was yeah. that was that was very real very real and that was because the united states was buying the products from the oil refined products from other countries we we're buying that and bringing it into the states and using their oil production instead of using our own. Yeah, they're bringing uh, typically non-refined, some refined, mostly non-refined crude oil into this country. Okay. Uh, th this country's production did not stay up with this country's demand, so oil imports started ramping up, and gotcha. and and have remained significant up until the start of the shale revolution, and that's when they started ramping down. You know, Whoa. a couple a couple of years ago, this country was essentially self sufficient in terms of energy. Right, right. Uh, in in 1973, I, I could be corrected, but I think the number was about 50 percent imported. Wow, wow, and that was shut, so, shut down. Yep, that was shut. And then, so the American production companies, or the idea of producing oil and gas, the the demand was incredible. Just a 50 percent mm -hmm. spike. That's right. Demand was there. Prices skyrocketed. Um, it basically uh, set this country into a recession. And there it is. Th Look this, at that this wall. Is, yeah. And you can see uh, on the left side of that graph, 1950, 60, 70, the oil price was essentially flat. Right. right. Three, three to five barrels, three, five dollars a barrel, whatever that was. Anybody that, that remembers the uh, Arab oil embargo in 73 probably remembers that the price of gasoline at the retail market was generally 29.9 a gallon. Everybody was selling gasoline for 29.9 a gallon. 29 and cents? 29 cents. Tenths. Yeah, 29.9. <laughs> yeah. Now, I noticed here in Midland today, we were at 359.9. So, whoa, that's pretty yeah. high for Midland. That's pretty high. So you, you got a 29 cent gas price. It doesn't matter where you go. Gas is, is 29 cents. And th this is the year I started driving. And it was great because gas was gas was cheap. If you could get it, it was still cheap, you know. And and the best thing in the world was what we called a gas war. When when a station would notch his, his price down to 28.9. And then the guy <laughs> across the street would go to 27.9. The, the cheapest I ever remember was 199. Uh, wow. Yeah. Came with a free coffee even. Uh, it probably did. And somebody probably pumped that gas for you too. <laughs> <laughs> Man. So another interesting spike is uh, Iran, Iraq war just uh, five years later. That's right. That's right. Um, the Iran, Iraq war really uh, put a, a cinch on, on supplies. Uh, Iran controls the Hormuz Straits where all the, uh, the oil in the tankers comes through. That's uh, it's almost their territorial waters, not quite, but almost. And they really control that. So a lot of the tanker activity was shut down because of that war. And that really restricted supplies. And then you can see in 1986, 
OPEC increased supply. We talked about 1986 earlier and the price of oil going down to the single digits. Uh, that was the, uh, I, th I think, our government's uh, attempt to uh, strangle the Soviet Union from their primary source of revenue, which was oil and gas. I mean, to end, I, I guess, the Cold War, right? I mean, that's what we're it's, talking about. That's right. That's right. Uh, people say Ronald Reagan defeated the Russians and or the Soviets in the, in the Cold War. This is how he did it. He he put them out of business, forced then, the Soviet Union to dissolve. Dang, the Gulf War bounces right back. Shoom. Right, right. And uh, when the Gulf War happened, uh, oil uh, hit forty dollars, a little over forty dollars for a short period of time. That war. You know did what's not interesting last. is the uh, the uh, Iraq War. Uh, you know, in 2001, right? 2001, 2002, 2003, uh, you, you see a climb, obviously, uh, in mm -hmm. the curve, but it's it's not a distinct wall. You know, there's something else going on in that later 2000s to 2015. It just seems like that curve seems a little bit different, huh? Yeah. Yeah, the, the market's become a lot more uh, chaotic since then, obviously. Um in oil prices were, were skyrocketing prior to the uh, the recession in 2008, nine, the, the real estate crash, whatever you want to call it. Right. Um, and and that, that killed demand, which dropped the price again. And industry really suffered during that also. Eesh. Yeah, what a fall. Yeah. And then you can see starting in about 2010 and what we call the shell revolution, you can see pricing uh, really started dropping because supplies were increasing dramatically. Yeah. Uh, that uh, the horizontal revolution, the shell technology is really responsible for production coming up, which has caused the prices to drop. Would you say the uh, railroad commission, if you had to, to put up another curve on this and you would put maybe like employees or certainly act, Activity, I guess, office activity would mirror this curve pretty real, you know, real time. Or what, what's your correlation to the railroad commission's history and, and the price of per barrel? You can um, you can take a rig count curve and put on this, and they'll track amazingly well. And the commission's business, um, the the new business, drilling wells, things like that, will go up and down uh, following the rig count. What a lot of people don't understand is, is that when times are bad is when the commission's workload tends to go up because people are not being responsible for their production. They're not plugging their wells. They're not cleaning up their messes. They're not spending the money it takes to keep things up. And that's when uh, people start noticing problems, complaints go up, environmental issues start increasing, and it wow. becomes difficult to get people to uh, follow the rules, as it were. Wow. What uh, what a wild time. We all remember the negative uh, day. I'm guessing this is just kind of spot price. Yeah, yeah. Spot that price that, that doesn't even show the, the negativity that happened in, uh, right. in in March of that year, March or April. Man. And, and, and it, what's what's interesting, uh, go to the next slide, if, if you would. Let me oh, I'm sorry. Um, I, I, thought I, I thought I had a, an expanded view of that curve. I may have not have put it in there. But, oh, okay, there you go. In, in that period of time where the price sunk in uh, March and April of 2020, yeah, talks of proration began again. In fact, the Railroad Commission, uh, the uh, uh, the Oil Conservation Commission in uh, Oklahoma, 
in, in several other producing states actually held hearings on whether it was necessary to reinstitute proration to wow. cause to cause prices to go up by restricting supply again. Right. Um, it was a, a long conference. It lasted all day and into the night. It was broadcast uh, over the internet. A lot of free people, you know, this is early COVID. So a lot of people were, were testifying remotely, but uh, the commission considered long and hard that maybe proration was where we needed to go. The mechanism is still in place. The system is still there. The authority is still there. I am glad they elected not to because getting rid of proration was a lot, would be a lot worse than uh, trying to institute it. Because once those markets have been artificially adjusted, it's, it's not going to be a fair playing field for everybody. Aye, aye, aye. Yeah, I could see that. I, I, I agree with you on that one. But that, uh, uh, that 1930 proration was basically what was discussed in 2020, nine years later. Fascinating. Okay, so you know we've, we've talked about this, kind of reviewed a uh, brief history of the commission, and, and why why does that even why do we even care? If we know where we've been, there we go. That, that's the one I was talking about. Okay. Uh, yeah, dur during that period right there, uh, the commission uh, seriously considered reinstituting proration, and in the you know, like I say, I'm glad we didn't do it because. We know where we've been. We've seen what proration does. It stifles innovation. It stifles development because it stifles the income that people have to work with. And that is not where we need to be. We need to turn people loose so that they can go full blast and do the best they can as economically as they can. And the commission, thankfully, agreed that that was probably the best path to take. And the, the negative pricing did not last long. And, and look where we're at now at $90. Yep. Yep. Wow. Railroad Commission established 1891. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's kind of uh, a yeah, it's, it, it's, it's a misnomer. There's been, there's actually been attempts to change the name of the Railroad Commission, but uh, believe it or not, some people like the tradition uh there's been talk about calling it the Texas Energy Commission or something like that. But yeah, uh, there, there's, a, there's a little bit of history in the name and people in the business understand what it means, which is good, but it's bad because people not in the business don't necessarily understand it. And they should. It's part of their government. They're paying for it. Yeah. And the, the history is incredibly important. So if you have that curiosity, uh, you know, chase down the history and then you can better probably understand the decisions of why we didn't prorate uh, this this go right. around and things like that. So I, that's right. I'm, I'm a fan of it. Keep it. Yeah, Railroad Commission hold that exactly. And currently has a budget of 150 million dollars a year. We have a 150 million dollar budget a year. What the heck? And that that's that's for uh employees obviously and everything that the the railroad commission needs to be as a regulatory body but what else does that money where else does uh, the money go a lot of that money goes to fund the commission's uh state uh, efforts to plug abandoned wells and clean up abandoned sites mm. the state the state plugs several thousand abandoned wells a year at no cost to the landowner at Gee. no cost to the interest owners when operators go out of business and, and uh, refuse to put wells in compliance. Right. Right. That's, that that's makes... a, that's a huge activity. And, uh, I, I don't know what their uh, average cost to plug a well is. I'm going to guess it's in the 25 to $30,000 a piece 
if you look at statewide. Yeah. Um, but if you plug several thousand of those at that price, you're spending millions of dollars a year. Right. No, exactly. And hopefully, you know, you would imagine there's a team that's working on costs and, and innovative technology to help reduce the costs and make it more efficient to, to get good plugs put away and, and ones that are going to last, you know, one of the right. big problems is long-term plugging. And I mean, it's, it's a it's, it's a wild, wild history. Uh, and, and I, I just absolutely love this show and, and learning more about this is, is just fascinating to me. And, this 835 FTE employees, what does FTE stand for? Uh, full-time equivalent. Um, okay. It, that's, uh, that's government ease for how many people you, you're authorized to hire. If you have two part-time people that work half-time, that's one FTE, for instance. So that's, that's not number of people. It's the uh, positions authorized. Okay. And 10 districts. 10 districts, the oil and gas division is 10 districts across the state. They've, uh, a couple of years ago, they reopened the Lubbock office and, uh, ah. and, and which is, which is really interesting. It's, 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 it's a pretty good strategy. I mean, Midland is the center of the universe in the Permian when it comes to oil and gas and working with companies and, and having the, the contact you need stuff, but it's hard to keep and retain people in Midland. It's mm -hmm. not so hard in Lubbock. Hmm. They've got a university there that has a, uh, a guaranteed feed train for uh, educated employees. Um, they've got a office established up there and they're keeping it staffed and working uh, the district 8A, which is essentially north of Andrews, um, Borden uh, counties. It, it, it's everything north of La Mesa, let's say. Okay. Um, um, up, up through the Lubbock area. So, so they're managing the district 8A kind of as a sub office out of, Mud, out, of out of Midland. But, but what's good about it is they've, they've got the human resources there that that enables them to keep an office and keep it staffed. Whereas in Midland, they struggle constantly keeping people employed here. I, I can, I, I totally understand that. We, we, yeah, the operator I was with, they're like, man, it'd be Nice to take our headquarters somewhere else, because uh, yeah, you, you, mm -hmm. you find a good engineer, you find a good geology, find this that they they get plucked, and um, you know it's yeah, competition is definitely real in uh, in Midland for for right. someone, and you know I, your career speaks to something that I think is is not maybe taught or or certainly wasn't uh, you know wasn't pounded into me as a young professional, but your your commitment to stay and your commitment to go through a, the process and understand something and, and be the part that that's so significant that there's a spot there for something like the railroad commission, your position exists because it's needed being there and, and then later being rewarded as you were as, as being a director in, in Midland, in the, in the main you know, heart of the Permian basin office now there's something there's something there, and uh, mm -hmm. I, I feel like there's there's a there's a disconnect in today's generation or kids coming out of college where it's like wait a minute I I could be running this company you know <laughs> or whatever yeah, yeah. Uh, there's there's more to it it's not it's not the the point the point of 
of taking your time and letting things settle in and understanding the process and appreciating that and and having the reward of of getting that position later and you know maybe it's just five ten years but there's something there there's something special about that i think yeah it, it's it's tough now um the you can label them whatever you want to label them but the the current generation coming into the workforce almost expects the instant gratification and uh, I've, I've dealt with that um, in, at the last two companies I've, I've worked at people you know come in they work for a year and they think they should be made supervisor and yeah. you you don't understand you have just started to learn you have not experienced anything yet you may think you know everything but you don't yeah. and um and even even myself uh, been in the workforce uh you know since before i graduated from college in 82 uh, i'm still learning i'm learning every yeah. day and yeah. once you quit learning you might as well just hang it up yeah and there's a difference i think between in the instant gratification and and wanting to make a difference you know if your passion is you want to make a difference and you're not being utilized enough. You don't have enough responsibilities. You want to do more, you know, all that stuff. That's great. You know, feed, feed them and, and talk to them and un make them understand what their importance and what they're doing and the impact they're making in, in the position that they're in. And I, you, you touched on that as a, you know, that's what it took to make a good Midland office. It needed some structure. It needed some guidance. It needed you know, some drive. And then you put the people in those seats and they love it. They love their job. They come to it every day. They shine. Um, you know, there's, there's just a disconnect, I think a little bit there. And, uh, you know, we're, 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 the generation knows that money is not what is going to give them happiness. They understand that, but they also are, you know, kind of like, I don't know. Yeah. They, they want to skip skip ahead and, and, and get into these roles and make a difference. And I got great ideas and, you know, make a difference and that's fine. But, but they're missing the, the point. There's something for the development of them personally, the development of them professionally to take their time out of college and to take their time and appreciate, you know, and understand and, and make sure you're in a good situation, of course, and you're not getting taken advantage of and blah, 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 but just accept that. And, and then, yeah. And then realize that the importance of that in their development personally and professionally, the money's going to come, uh, and your career is, you know, far from, from over kind of, I, I don't know. I don't know where I want to go that. I don't even know why I'm really bringing that up. I just wanted to get that out there. <laughs> but you're exactly right. Uh, money is not everything. Uh, the, you're not going to get rich working for the commission. I mean, it's a state job. Come on. But, there is some fulfillment you get there doing the right thing, helping people do it. And, and really uh, in what, what can be tough situations, getting the best out of people. And when I was there, my management theory was you, you tell people what their job is, you support them, but you give them enough rope to hang themselves with. You let yeah. them go as far as they can on their own. And when they get to the end of that rope, that's when you're there to help them and guide them. And I got the best performance out of everybody by treating them the way I'd want to be treated, which is the way I like to be treated. Let me do what I can do. Get out of the way and let me, let me do what I can do. And that's, that's, that's how you get the best out of people. Right on. I like that. I, I'm getting a lot out of this conversation. I really appreciate you. 
you uh, you doing this and and this is the big one this organization chart I mean this is this is fantastic this is what I was really trying to gather and, and kind of put in my head you know what is what are these commissioner seats you know and, and how does that actually work how important are these do you want to start at the top of this or do you want to work your way from the bottom and go up oh let's let's start at the at the top um, where we've got three commissioners one is the chairman and traditionally, the chairman is the one that's up for election next. Their terms are staggered, six-year terms. Everyone is staggered uh, two years. So every two years, you have somebody running for election or re-election. And this year, it happens to be uh, Commissioner Christian. Uh, he is up for re-election, um, so he, he was named chairman. Uh, Commissioner Jim Wright is the newest one on the commission. Um, he actually has a little bit of an oil and gas background. Uh, he got elected, uh, I guess it was two years ago now, or approaching two years, uh, yeah. kind of a, uh, a dark horse win. He beat uh, Ryan Sitton. Uh, Ryan Sitton was a, uh, a pipeline guy that was very, um, very animated, very knowledgeable, very uh, engaging. And um, Jim Wright beat him. And I don't know if anybody knows why. <laughs> uh, not that, not that sitting was a bad commissioner because he wasn't, um, yeah. but, but Jim Wright shares a name with the former speaker of the house. And that may be why hmm. I don't know name recognition. Anyway, so uh, commissioner Wright's go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. Being, uh, identified as chairman, is that a different responsibility than the other commissioners as chairman with Wayne Christian, or is that just mean that he, he, his position or his, yeah, his chair is up this year for re-election is that why it's de designated as chairman their their functions are really all the same the chairman uh has the honor of controlling the meetings when they meet in public uh he sits in the middle he has the gavel uh so so the chairman controls the meetings not so much the agenda but just the pace and the flavor of the meeting okay okay so so, so the chairman um you know, it, it's it's an honorary title. Mostly, the other two commissioners elect the chairman, uh, so uh, typically it's going to be a, a, a three to zero vote. Uh, not always, but typically it is. Uh, so, as, as chairman, um, Chairman Christian can control the meeting. Uh, he is it's a ceremonial title as much as anything. Okay. I got you. Okay, so it, it doesn't mean that the the one that gets elected or if he regains this, he'll stay chairman. That can change. That can go to any of them. Yeah, let, let's look forward and say uh, say Commissioner Christian was reelected. Then they would uh, at the first meeting after the election, after he's sworn in for the second term, they would meet and elect a new chairman, which would be uh, Christy Craddock. She would be the next one up for election. Okay. If they follow okay. tradition. So, um, so you got the three commissioners. Uh, Christy Craddock is the daughter of Tom Craddock. Tom Craddock is the longest serving state representative in Texas history from Midland, wow. Wow. uh, for, former speaker of the house. Uh, Tom Craddock's been a great friend to industry. He's been very good for Midland, Odessa and West Texas. Uh, commissioner Craddock has, uh, taken a lot of his ability to work with industry and support industry and in, in taking it to the commissioner's level. And she's been, I think, for what most people consider a very good commissioner, very engaged and wanting to do the right thing for the state and for industry. Why are there three of them? 
Uh, constitutionally, there has to be three. That's why. No other reason. It's in the Texas what, Constitution. What, in a as simplest form possible or simplest answer possible, what is the responsibility of the commissioner? The commissioner set the policy that the staff enacts for whatever activity you're considering. Staff is not supposed to set policy. The commissioner set policy. The staff carries out the policy the commissioner set. Um, then in, in, in return, uh, let's say you have a, uh, a decision that has to be made. You go to a hearing, you try to get an order that allows you to do something or changes of field rule, whatever. That order then is, a, is approved by the uh, hearing examiner, sent to the commission, and the commission votes on it to approve that and sign it. So the commissioners approve things sent from staff up and dictate to staff down what the policies will be. Okay. They're, okay. they're the, they're, they're the bosses. They're the leaders. They're not the, they're you. not the, okay. uh, necessarily the ones in the trench, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Okay. So policy, uh, definition generally is just kind of how the inner workings of the railroad commission goes like an organizational chart change or, uh, this form or that process, you know, little changes yep. in anything in regards to the internal workings of the railroad commission. That's what the a policy would best basically be. Yeah. I, I can give you a good example. Uh, as you're aware, flaring has been a hot topic, flaring of natural gas. And, and it's been alleged that Texas, basically you can flare, anytime you want to with no, uh, no ill effects, no, no adverse uh, actions from the state. Not quite true, but that's the impression. Well, the commissioners, Commissioner Christian uh, especially, dictated to staff that he wanted flaring to stop unless an operator had a legitimate reason there was no other way to, to uh, maintain your production other than flaring. And if you don't have a pipeline connection, you better get one because that's no longer a valid reason. Uh, we're going to restrict flaring. Uh, he wow. made, he made that uh, very clear to staff. And since then staff has taken that and taken it to industry to where now, if you need a flaring exception, you have to have a valid reason. Whereas before you really didn't. Whoa. That's so, pretty big. Yeah. Yeah. So they can, they, definitely affect which direction the commission's going and what what direction the, the industry has to follow to stay yeah. in compliance uh, with things like that. And there's other things too, but the flaring is a good uh, recent example. Okay. That's a perfect example and one that you can uh, kind of extrapolate or easily think about with uh, induced seismicity and, and deep water injection wells. Yep. Uh, if, if the, if, if they're, going to come up with some volume and some pressure that you can't reach, or you have to have a really good reason why, or a really good study on how it's not uh, affecting deep seated faults and all that stuff structurally, uh, that that's something that the commissioner could, could say, let's, let's, let's think about this. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah. So the commissioner set the policy, the staff carries out the policy. That's really how okay. it's supposed to work. Cool. Uh, what's another interesting thing about the commission is uh, they cannot meet the, the two of them or three of them cannot meet unless they post it as a public meeting. So a lot of the commission work is done uh, kind of in a vacuum separately. 
because anytime they sit down to talk to one another, it's a public meeting. They have to post. Wow. And, uh, wow, that, that, that creates, it really creates some issues in getting them to, to, to get them on the same page with, with things. You can't talk to all three of them at one time. You have to talk to them one at a time. Wow. That's uh, that's pretty strange. Thinking about that. No Christmas party, huh? No, uh, <laughs> well, you know, technically I, I'd say two of them in an elevator would be a public meeting. So, <laughs> <laughs> okay. And you got internal audit commission secretary, um, kind of that next, next branch in this and then to executive director. So, yep. Yeah. Executive directors, Wei Wang, uh, Wei is a, uh, a great gentleman. He runs the commission's business on a day-to-day basis. Basically, uh, he is essentially the chief executive officer of the commission. Um, anybody needs a decision, um, emergency comes up budget items, weighs the guy you go to, he handles day to day, whatever it takes for the commission to accomplish its mission. Uh, he gets his guidance from the three commissioners. Of course, he feeds them everything that's going on. If you watch a railroad commission, uh, open conference, they, they uh, broadcast them and post them, uh, on, online, but, uh, you, you can watch them and typically way will present to them, uh, a summary of what's going on regarding federal regulations, state funded plugging, uh, employment, uh, vacancies, things like that. He's, he's the guy that's dealing with it day to day. Okay. And, and Danny Sorrells is really his deputy assistant, uh, executive director of the deputy. Danny is also the oil and gas division director. Uh, the oil and gas oh, division yeah. director, you can see uh, in the in the bottom right corner of the box, 421, that's how many employees that division has. Wow. So you can see more than, yeah, yeah four oil, times more than. Oil and gas is, is easily half of the commission staff. That's how so, important it is. So the deputy executive director, Danny, uh, he, he can also be a director of, of any of the, what do you call these divisions? The, yeah, they're, like they're, oversight. They're called, yeah, they're, they're divisions. Um, Dan, Danny is the oil and gas division director, but uh, they've named him as the deputy for when way is uh, indisposed. He, he can step in and do whatever way needs done. I got you. Okay. So it's kind so, of that. Okay. I get that. It kind of like a vice president, you know? Right. Okay. And then Brent, Carrie, Dana, Alex, the, all these other directors are, are every month they're, they're getting what they, what they're needing to do, like manage human resources, the benefits, mm-hmm. training, HR policy, all that information and changes are, are coming into the to, to Way's office and he's 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 kind of managing all the the communication really between the divisions and the commissioners and kind of yep. here here are issues that people are having or here's some suggestions and and that's the the whole relationship right there this is the pivot point huh right um it, it's almost as if the three commissioners uh were the were the white house the executive director is the chairman of the joint chiefs and the directors are the, are the chiefs, uh, chiefs of staffs. It, it's kind yeah. of the same hierarchy. Okay. Uh, to put it in, in federal terms. So, so the division yeah. director is in each division is the person that, that really, um, 
not so much sets policy, but, but handles the day-to-day business of each, each separate division. Uh, Danny is oil and gas director, for instance, if somebody was to, uh, have a well blowout out of control and create some type of emergency, you'd want to update him because he may get a question from the commissioner's office, that type of thing. He's the go-between. Wow. Right on, man. That is really cool. That's really, really cool. Thank you for taking the time on that and, and, and walking me through that. That, I thought I got a lot of information. There you go. A couple things for that uh, your audience probably be most interested in is the oil and gas division is who we generally deal with. The oversight and safety division is the pipeline uh, safety uh, department. Uh, anybody that operates pipelines, they'll permit that pipeline and, and possibly be regulated, and that's the division that will end up doing that. So those are really the two uh, divisions that anybody in the oil and gas business will deal with on a regular basis. You will also deal with hearings. If you go to uh, a protest, you want to change field rules, you want a rule change, something like that. Typically the hearings gets involved. The general counsel is really, okay. really the attorney to the commissioners. Um, legal, uh, the, the hearings director and, and the hearings director staff is the ones that act as administrative law judges when you go to hearings, make decisions, and, and get orders approved by the three commissioners. Wow. Cool. Okay. And uh, yeah, so I think now we can go into kind of the hot topics, as you put it in this is presentation. This kind of gets us into the completion part mm -hmm. of the show which is, you know, the, the main concerns of, uh, of, of, for the commissioners now, uh, for the near future and, and long-term, uh, this is, these are your, your three, uh, from today, huh? Yeah. Uh, Troy, these are really the, the things that are, uh, people are concerned about right now. We talked about flaring briefly a minute ago, any of your, uh, audience, that's planning on attending the event next week or voting in the election. The, these are some of the things they should be asking. Uh, flaring. Uh, what is your opinion on flaring? How do you want to regulate flaring? Do you ever think flaring is okay? Or is flaring always unacceptable? I think those extreme answers will tell you a lot about the candidates. Uh, my personal so, opinion. Go yeah, ahead, I'm sorry. Please. I was I was interested in in your personal opinion on 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 flaring and the idea is it's not the raw gases coming out of formation going to atmosphere they're being burned mm -hmm. which has a byproduct of some kind you know burning that but it's not just pumping straight methane CO2 and things into the atmosphere no it's not uh what flaring is is it, it's a resource conservation issue as much as it is environmental um that the natural gas that's produced is probably going to get burned somewhere it's either in the burner tip of the stove or manufacturing process or, or something at a flare you're burning it so you're not it's not like you're avoiding the emission from burning that it, it's going to happen anyway uh, flares typically are not as efficient as, as burners. They create, uh, nitrogen oxides. They create, uh, sulfur dioxide. Uh, a lot of the gas is flared because it contains H2S hydrogen sulfide, which is hazardous. So you burn it to get rid of it. 
and you create another hazardous material as, as a byproduct, sulfur dioxide, but it, uh, it gets it out of the way. All, all those become environmental issues uh, created by the flaring. But flaring is really, in my mind, a resource conservation issue, because if you're flaring that gas, you're not accomplishing anything good with it. Nobody's heating their house or make, making plastics or fueling a vehicle with it. It's, it's a waste in terms of an energy source. So the commission is taking the attitude, and I think this is well-founded, that if you're flaring because it's convenience, you probably shouldn't be flaring. But if you're flaring because it's the last choice, it's the only thing you can do to maintain production, then maybe we should let you flare, but maybe we should limit it as much as possible. And a good example of that is somebody drills a new well, um, you're in Midland County and you drill a new horizontal well, and you're making a million cubic feet of gas a day. Well, you don't have a pipeline to it yet, but it's a few hundred yards away. You're going to put that on production, but you're going to get a permit to flare. The commission may say, no, you should have had that pipeline laid before you put that well in production. That's a good example of how they can be proactive in forcing conservation of that resource. Now, yeah. you drill that same well and you are in uh, southern Reese County or you're in Hudspeth County. You're somewhere in the middle of BFE. There is no pipeline. They're probably going to let you flare that because there is no way to bring a pipeline to capture that resource. And it's probably more important to capture the oil than, than not produce the oil and not flare the gas. There's, there's a balance that has to be maintained. So flaring has to be done with eyes wide open, what you're doing, but it also has to be done only in cases where that's what you need to do. And I think the commission's getting to that point. Okay. So flaring, uh, in your opinion, at least for the near-term solution, it sounds like it's uh, it's just becoming a lot more um, audited, I guess. You know, more mm -hmm. information about like what's really going on here, uh, and and if it doesn't qualify with the, it's it's not enough uh, to to you know to allow you to flare, then the railroad commission will not let you flare. Is that correct? That is correct. They will not issue you a permit. They when you wow. apply for a permit to flare, they're going to ask you. Why do you need to flare? And you have to have a good, valid reason. If and a good reason may be, well, my the the gas plant that processes my gas is down for unscheduled maintenance. And if you've got horizontal production that you don't want to shut in because you may potentially damage the well, they're probably going to let you flare for a short period of time. That that may be legitimate, but they're going to look at every case and decide, yes, that's okay, or no, it's not. And they may say, we need more information. You say the pipeline is down, the, the gas plant's down. Where is their communication telling you that? They're going to want to wow. see that, that type of thing. They're being yeah. very, very uh, proactive in seeing that the flaring is being done for good reason. And if you look at the commission website, they post flaring volumes or percentage of gas flared. And that percentage has dropped dramatically in the last six months to where less than 1% of the produced gas is being flared. It's, it's, it's become a, uh, it was hard getting there for industry to kind of change the way they think, but it was the right thing to do. And I think uh, industry would support it now. Wow. Very good. Well, that's exciting and critical infrastructure. What's the definition on that? Okay. Um, 
you're not in Texas. Uh, last February, we had that uh, big freeze, winter storm Uri, uh, snowmageddon, uh, you know, hell froze over. <clears throat> it was cold. Uh, we were below zero here in Midland for a number of days. I uh, didn't get above freezing for seven or eight days. Um, that took its toll on the electrical grid. It's made national news, as you're probably aware. Oh, yeah. The, uh, the politicians have tended the some of the politicians are have tended to say well the reason the grid was stressed was because the oil and gas infrastructure shut everything in froze up could not produce the gas and some of that's true not all of it some of it's true uh, um, when it gets cold some wells freeze off well, critical infrastructure was legislation passed in the legislative session that was actually going on during the freeze that forced the uh, ERCOT, the grid, the electric utilities, and the producers to acknowledge which of their wells, pipelines, and facilities are critical to supply gas that's used to generate electricity and used mm. to heat homes. So if your well is designated as a critical infrastructure well, uh, you are, you will be forced if you haven't already to winterize that, to maintain production during extreme events. Uh, some of that's easy. Uh, you can wrap insulation, put heat tape on all of this stuff requires electricity. So what the critical infrastructure legislation does, it requires the operators to notify their, their electrical provider and their generator, uh, we in Texas is, is free market electricity. So you have a retailer and then you have a transmitter of the power, the, the wires company, you notify both of them, this is critical infrastructure and they will endeavor to keep power to your critical infrastructure, to keep it online, to continue to feed gas to where it needs to go to generate electricity. It's kind of a big wow. circle. Um, this probably needed to be done. Um, I don't know that I like everything the way it's been done. It's, it's been very political, way too political. But uh, rulemaking will start soon, I think, on what winterization really is uh, considered, what what it's going to be in terms of yes, you have or no, you haven't. Uh, I hope it's general, it's performance-based, not, um, not really uh, telling you what has to be done, just what has to be accomplished. Don't tell, don't tell me to wrap insulation on the pipe. Tell me to keep the pipe from freezing and let me decide how to do it. That type of thing. Uh, right, right. So, so this critical infrastructure legislation is, is forcing the operators to determine what, what is truly critical and how to keep it online. And uh, it's going to force winterization. It's going to force uh, gas pipelines to, uh, you know, perhaps enclose compression in buildings to keep them from freezing up, things like that. The downside is, and I don't know that a lot of people have thought about this, that one of the reasons this infrastructure is constructed this way is because it's so damn hot in Texas, things don't cool. Mm. And so you put them in the open so that they will cool. But now if you're enclosing them, you've got cooling issues in the summer. Wow. And, and the electrical demand in the summer is easily as greater, greater than it is in the winter. So, so it creates other issues. Yeah. Whoa. But, but okay, this, has been, so this has been a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. How do you stay up on the, the details of that? Um, yes, sometimes I don't know. <laughs> uh, you, you try there's, there's, there's numerous sources. Um, one of the things I do kind of as a service to industry is uh, myself and a, and a good friend of mine, 
at a, a little independent company here in Midland. Uh, we chair the Permian Basin Petroleum Association's Regulatory Practices Committee. Mm. And so we've got 50 or 70 members that routinely attend our meetings once a month. We share information, anything that our members get, they forward to us. We right. kind of hash it out and funnel it to the membership in general so that everybody can be up to date. We, we kind of share the tasks, share the workload. Right on. That's um, fantastic. Yeah, that's really interesting. That's the whole state of Texas or is it just primarily um, well, focused? Well, it's, it's the Permian Basin Petroleum Association. There's uh, four or five trade associations in Texas. PBPA is the one association that shares two states, New Mexico and Texas. Okay. Um, but most of the, uh, the major producers in, in the Permian are members of PBPA. Uh, it's a very active, very uh, vocal association. It's, it's uh, very supportive of industry. And it's, it's one way I can provide some support to the industry that, that others may, you know, sometimes struggle with. I, I tend to specialize in the Texas side. Uh, my co-chair, uh, uh, Jimmy Carlisle at Faskin, he tends to specialize on the New Mexico side. There's so much going on. No one person can stay up with it all. Right. Right. And that's the importance and the, 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 uh, benefits of a, of a solid community that you guys Absolutely. are a part of. You got 60, 70 people all getting different emails, all getting different letters, all different, you know, That's right. you, com you combine, you go, Oh man, you got, you heard that. Where, where's that? Let you know, you talk about it and, that's the only way. That's the only way this can uh, this can be managed. Uh, that's right. So that's, that's right. Really, really good. Induced seismicity. Where's the railroad commission on this? In your opinion, uh, this is this is uh, uh, really a, a major issue in the Midland area. Um, you know, if you look back a couple of years, seismicity was an issue in Oklahoma, and then in the DFW area associated with Barnett development. Yeah. Uh, around Azel DFW airport, you don't see it on the news as much there. And that's because they've taken some steps to kind of uh, reduce some of the injection activities that seem to be causing it. As the horizontal world has stepped up in the Delaware basin and the Midland basin, uh, the, the induced seismicity has really become more of an issue. It's, 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 it's become, let, let me put it this way. You can feel earthquakes in Midland on a regular basis now. And uh, mm -hmm. I've lived here for almost 30 years, and I never felt one until last year. And uh, that one, it was a 3.4, about five miles north of Midland. And it rattled the house, and I had to literally peel the dogs off the ceiling. It, was, <laughs> it, it, it made a racket. Okay. So when you're affecting a population of 150,000 people in Midland, it becomes a big issue. And, that, and that's where it's at. The commission has in, in, in the Permian uh, declared three seismic response areas. The first one is what they call Gardendale SRA. And that is from East Odessa through the town of Gardendale to North of Midland, um, Northern Midland County, Eastern Hector County. Uh, they uh, declared one of, uh, three or four months ago, uh, the North Reese Culberson SRA. And that includes an area north of Pecos, south of Orla in Culberson and Reeves County, where the big Delaware development's taking place. And then just recently, in the last month, they developed a third SRA, the Stanton SRA, which is in Martin County, east of Midland, where there's a concentration right. of deep disposal wells. And wow. I think that the general feeling is nobody knows for sure. 
But I think the general assumption is, is that deep disposal, typically Ellenberger, is changing the rock stresses down hole, and that's enabling these old historic geologic aged faults to kind of get livened back up and start slipping a little bit. And that's what's causing these little earthquakes. Yeah. Yeah. The, for, the original study or precedence of that was, uh, shoot, in the 50s. You know, these geologists came out and said, look, if thrust faulting when saturated with water and you increase pore pressure, you drastically decrease effective stress. You know, yes. the, the, the amount of energy it takes to move that fault. It just, it's, it's a crazy relationship. And so the wetter it gets down there and we we're currently doing a study on figuring out what exactly is the rock in the basement. It could be talc. It could be Mm -hmm. talc. The talc mines of West Texas could definitely be telling us that's what's maybe down there. That can certainly be absorbing a lot of fluid. Um, You know, you got to drill into it if you really want to find out, you know, an operator might have that data somewhere that's drilled into the basement to confirm the hypothesis, but the idea of increasing pore pressure hydraulically with fluid and how it drastically decreases effective stress and makes faults move is, is definitely a well understood. And, and that's just how we understand geology. That's how, you know, we, we go through modeling and and how faults work. So it's, I, 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 I'm excited to hear and I'm I'm so thankful for your opportunity for you to take the time and and go through all this and then talk about the kind of these hot topics because it seems like it's a it's a very crucial year for uh getting a commissioner in place for the next 6 years mm-hmm. uh the next 6 years of the Permian Basin the next 6 years for the state of Texas how much oil is going to be coming out of this uh the ground still and gas and revenue the revenue for yep. the state, it could be arguably the most out of any industry in the state, uh, maybe in the country. And the Railroad Commission is going to be on the front lines of that. And uh, and how dynamic of a process, how dynamic of a relationship between operator and regulatory body with the general public in mind and, and conveying that message, conveying the information to the public. Incredible. You know, you, um, you know. The revenue aspect of the oil and gas industry in Texas is significant. And what what is missed is to look at the state of New Mexico. New Mexico is is very uh, it's a difficult state to operate in. They're making it hard to operate in New Mexico. Uh, they've got a democratic governor, democratic legislature. Um, they're they're not real supportive of the oil and gas industry over there. The oil and gas industry funds 40% of New Mexico's budget. Wow. If that goes away, what's the state of New Mexico going to do? Now, it's compared to New Mexico, it's fractional in Texas. The Texas economy is so much bigger, but it's still significant, um, especially in terms of dollars, not, not percentage. But, but look at New Mexico. New Mexico's a small state. It's a poor state. It's, it's plagued by low education, high unemployment, and they're trying to do away with one of the best industries for people to lift themselves up by the bootstraps, and put themselves to work. It, it just makes no sense whatsoever. Thankfully, Texas is not there. The, right. the people running for railroad commission, the, the, the sitting commissioners are very supportive of the oil and gas industry. Your viewers need to look at those running and see if they're supportive or if they're against the industry. Because uh, I think if you look under the hood, you may, you may not see an engine. Some, some of them, 
may not be quite as uh, supportive as they should be because this industry does so much for the state in terms of employment and tax revenue and, and, uh, in just the the jobs and businesses that this industry supports, uh, you know, through the the multiplication factor, it's it's incredible how much wow. the, this this business does. Wow, well said, sir. Well said. I will say that was well said, along with everything else you delivered in this presentation. One, your background, your history, your your professionalism. You know what you've accomplished in your career the knowledge and information that you have and that you help to apply to real world operators and real world operations to help it go and go smoothly and be the correct decision that's going to not come back and bite someone in the ass later as an operator or economically. Uh, and then and then when we dove into the, the drill down segment and the history, those pictures and just kind of how it all correlates to what the original railroad commission was and kind of ESG of, of, uh, you know, uh, 90 years ago to what this ESG mm -hmm. movement is now, what did we really learn from back then? How are we thinking about it now to make it better? We need to stop, you know, we need to limit the mistakes. We need to use the history to, to help with that. And your show uh, with the inner workings of the Railroad Commission, you know, how what reports to who, who's where, what divisions are there, how it works, I thought was fascinating. Uh, I really enjoyed spending this time with you. It was an honor to spend this time with you. Troy, I, I appreciate it. Um, and I think the, the way I would sum everything up is it's hard to know where you're going if you don't know where you've been. And I think if we look back, see where we've been, uh, maybe we can pick a, a better path going down the future. Right I, on, I appreciate right. it. Thank you for having me.